0: What's up, everybody? This is This Moment, the transatlantic bridge between Sweden and America. It's Jason Diakete, it's Chef Martin Samson. This week, I'm sitting down with the one and only, Chef Andrew Zimmern. Amazing chef, friend, food traveler. You know him from all his amazing shows. He's actually launching a new show on the Magnolia Network. And we're gonna talk about it all. When I say all, all of it, mental health and drugs. Anthony Bourdain, Minneapolis. Going to touch a little bit about the healing post-George Floyd Prince. Check out My Heart to Heart with Chef Andrew Zimmer.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.
0: Zooming away on the other side of this is my dear friend, Andrew Zimmern. How are you, buddy? I'm good. Are you in Minnesota or where are you?
2: Of all the things, I'm in New York, you're not in New York, and neither one of us is in Minnesota.
0: A lot of people might not know that you grew up in New York and what part of the New Tell me, you know... You born in the 60s, so you really come of age in the 70s. So to just tell me that incredible New York, what it was like, what was the food like, all the hip hop Um everything.
2: Sure, um, it, was, it was amazing. I mean, we all are witnesses to culture, you know, and whatever that, you know, part of it that we take, you know, wherever we are grown and incubated. And I was lucky, I was born in New York City, 1961, uh, and by the time I was 18, New York City had changed immensely. Um, I went to a snooty private school because I was a snooty little obnoxious kid. I, I was cute and adorable for 10 minutes a day if you, if you wanted me to be, I could <laughs> act that part. Um, and I was good at performing for my mm-hmm. parents because I I knew that was a faster way to get what I wanted. Um, everything was about me, 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 me. And mm. even at a very young age, I'm talking eight, nine, 10, I was fully a user of people and a taker of things. Um, so by the time I, I, you know, added alcohol and chemicals into the mix after my mother had a, a an operation, she was in a, a, a coma for, uh, almost a year. And then two, three years out of the house in a, in a mental institution, Having her mind kind of rebuilt, just so she could be functional, um, that was a big family trauma, and I wound up. But how, it old 13, like how old
0: were you, stop? Thirteen. How old?
2: Summer 30? that I turned. Summer that I turned thirteen.
0: Wow.
2: So, uh, you know, my dad uh, told you know my dad fought in World War Two, Greatest Generation. You know, you puff out your chest, you stuff that feeling yep. down. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a big. Um, movement now, uh, really built over the last 18 to 24 months, uh, all built around the idea that it's okay not to be okay.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, but 55, 60, 50 years ago, it, it was sort of the exact opposite. Everybody mm-hmm. thought you have to pretend to be okay, even if you're not okay. Okay. And that was the message I got from my dad. He was doing the best he could. I didn't come with an instruction manual. Um, It just that parenting was different. Learning was different. Mm -hmm. Mental health issues were different. And that, that was the start of my drinking and drugging that just kept getting worse and worse and worse for almost 17 years after that.
0: It's fascinating. So when you say this, right, so there's a couple of images that go through my mind. First of all, so it's around 1975, 1976. I know the summer of 1977 is when the blackout happens in New York City. So I was like, okay, it's around that time. The other thing I know is that, okay, Sly and the Family Stone is on the scene. Stevie has lost, launched all those amazing albums. Hip-hop, the idea of hip-hop is just coming.
2: So, so it is Oh, multiple, it started. And, Gil, remember Gil Scott Heron and all that yes. stuff? You know, the, I mean, we've talked about this. I'm a big music geek and I know that you are too. Um, And you know, it's, it's, you can't separate music uh, from life. It's, it's a cultural uh, totem that's just immense. And we, we live in music, right? We, 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 our lives beat to the music and music beats and makes our lives. you know, we we had four or five different types of music communities that you could participate in in New York. So mm. during the 70s, when I was in high school, we could go down to CBGBs or some of those clubs yeah, sure. and hear, you know, uh, Debbie Harry sing the Ramones play, see the Sex Pistols. I mean, all that the, the punk scene in the clubs was mm-hmm. in full bloom. Even uh, that, talking and, Head, oh, oh David Byrne at no, that point. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Well, they were yeah. they were a college band at RISD uh right around then um much in the same way that when i went to college rem came mm-hmm. and lived at our house cuz they were Crazy. just they were just a college band from athens georgia i mean it's it's kind of strange um and you know then there was um big arena rock, right? So Mm -hmm. I could go to Madison Square Garden, (laughs) see every weekend was different. Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, The Grateful Dead, Yes, Emerson Lake and Palmer. I mean, just go all the the big sort of classic rock uh, big Mm -hmm. bands. But then there was uh, the music that you would get taken to by a cousin Mm -hmm. or uh, one of my mom's first boyfriends uh, turned me on to what at the time was called black music. Right. And it consisted of a lot of different things. There was the the ska into reggae thing that was happening right then. um, We talked about Gil Scott Heron and there were already street performers popular in New York, especially Mm -hmm. in Queens and uh, upper Manhattan uh, that were out there and pushing music. You had disco. Yeah. (laughs) People forget. But people forget, I mean, right now, it was laughed at for years. I certainly <laughs> ate quaaludes and snorted coke and danced my ass off to it at nightclubs. But now there's this sort of cultural appreciation yeah, and sure. influence that, that 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 music had on even some of today's biggest performers. Um, and, you know, then, of course, you had the the two of the artists that you mentioned, you know, Sly and Stevie mm-hmm. and and all of that that was building off of what Motown had given us, Mm -hmm. but was coming out and saying, here we are. I mean, I remember, you know, when Inner Visions came came out, it literally changed (laughs) FM radio. I mean, literally overnight. All of a sudden, there were dozens and dozens of black artists of of all stripes on Mm -hmm. on the radio because Inner Visions had just had exploded with popularity like nothing anybody had seen before. And, you know, the callbacks in that music, mm-hmm. um, both to African music, to jazz. I mean, people forget. I mean, for those of you that are listening that haven't put inner visions on, yeah, you it, know, and it, hopefully uh, you do it on incredible. a turntable. It is it is as relevant today in 2021 yeah. as it was when it came out for, just from musicality standpoint. Mm-hmm. But back then, it people forget how groundbreaking it was. I mean, mm-hmm. devastatingly groundbreaking perfectly groundbreaking so yeah we had a chance to see a lot of cool music here and you know of course new york city was a place where you could see live music like that um you know uh bands you know stevie wonder was not going out and playing hibbing minnesota um, (laughs) back in the late 70s it just you know it it, he wasn't so i was very lucky to be growing up in new york and see all that
0: how did so i have a couple of Quick beat, like so. When and how did food enter? Oh. before I want to go back to before that's we talk an easy about, one. That's yeah, an easy one. My,
2: my dad loved to eat, and yeah. um, his grandmother was a great cook, and she cooked out of the Eastern European Jewish grandmother sure. playbook. They had in the right before he went off uh to fight in World War II, they they became middle class, his family, they were poor. Nice. Uh, and then they became middle class because my my grandfather got a better job. So one day a week, they had a Hungarian housekeeper who came in and tidied up. And uh, on Fridays, she was their Shabbos Goy, someone who, while my grandparents weren't touching anything and were trying to remain prayerful, she would cook and clean in the house. And she would cook a whole bunch of things and leave them in the fridge. And so my father got turned on to a different kind of cuisine. And then he realized he was when he came back from the war that he was living in a city with incredible food. So when I was born, my dad was the dad that at, at age three I'm out on Arthur Avenue in the Bronx eating Italian food. We're down in we're down in uh, Little Italy um, at DePaolo's Dairy. Um, back before hunting down fresh mozzarella and Italian olive oil was a thing, right? Um, my dad. We, we went and explored both New York City Chinatowns uh, nice. at that nice. point, and he was. Uh, we I remember when the first sushi bars opened in New York. My dad was the first one there. Wait,
0: wait, wait! Had, you can't just say that. What era? Because I've always wanted to know that. What 73, era?
2: Seventy-three. The first. The first sushi bars in New York City opened up in seventy-three and seventy-four um, on the East Side. I assume or uh, business district, East Side, East yep. Side Midtown.
0: Yeah,
2: and. Um, I think, uh, and I know you're familiar with the restaurant Hatsuhana. I of think course. Hatsuhana, which at, at for many years was the best uh, mm-hmm. sushi bar in New York City, um, was the second sushi bar uh, wow. to open in in New York, and that was Midtown East. Um, my dad just loved food, so he would take me there for for lunch to meet him, you know, he'd have an hour long break. And if I wasn't in school, I'd go have lunch with him. It's funny though, that you say that because the, the early seventies were a real turning point. So
0: mm-hmm.
2: first sushi bars opened in New York in the early seventies, uh, ta- uh, trade laws change. So all of a sudden in the mid seventies, Italian products are coming into America without mm-hmm. a huge tax on them. So for the first time you see Italian pasta in stores, mm-hmm. olive oil, no one had seen balsamic vinegar um, or Italian bags of pasta in, in your, they were just too expensive, right? Wow. Um, and then of course there was the big one for me, which was Nixon's uh, detente with China and Kissinger's uh, trade deal and cultural exchange with China. So for those that uh, you know are obsessed with Chinese food as I am, um, once that cultural exchange happened, all of us, and I mean overnight, Mm -hmm. the Chinese acrobatic troops came in and started playing Madison Square Garden. That was the first wave of, in in the cultural exchange. And the second one was uh, visa stamps for Chinese chefs. So Mm -hmm. up until 1974, we really only had uh, Cantonese food, um, Chinese American food, um, and very little else. And then all of a sudden, 1974, there was Uncle Tai's Hunan Yuan, open, yes. And nobody had tasted. I mean, it was like it blew your mind because you know Hunan food. You know, the food from Yunnan is incredible. You know yeah. that that there was a thing called you know uh, you know that, that they had ham and sausages that were made over there. By the way, a a, a cured meat tradition that would rival any other cultures. Uh, in fact twice as big as Italy's and France's combined, actually. And um, probably older. Probably oh, of course, older. of course. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's an incredible thing that all of a sudden regional Chinese food came flooding in. People have wow. to remember, it wasn't until the late 60s that even things like margaritas or co- cocktails sort of came back, and especially international ones, right? Yeah. I mean, New York sort of shifted everything that way. And what, what in the early, 69, 70, 71 was a a relatively bland meat and potatoes town with a mm-hmm. lot of little cultural groups that you could go into their neighborhoods and eat. We'd go to Queens, we'd go to Astoria for Greek food in the late 60s with my parents, um, but nothing was mainstream and accessible. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, by the time I was in high school, 76, 77, everything was going off. And then, of course, just a few years, years sure. later, by the time I graduated high school, you had... Literally, um, American cuisine rebounding back against us, us, and the the that was when the restaurant boom in New York City really took off historically.
0: So you just gave this beautiful landscape, and this is my point, right? At this time, New York City is broke. Your yep. crime goes through the roof. Where it's right pre-sort of crack hits New York City, but it's still probably like heroin, right? But at the same time, we're talking about it as a joyful time of food and music, right? Yeah. And and it kind of mirrors your life because you're this kid that is clearly curious and just loves New York City, all of it, and you experience all of it. But it's also the time where you start going into to drugs. So just tell us about that. Well, I couldn't How did handle. How happen?
2: I couldn't handle that. That beautiful thing that you're talking about. I couldn't handle, you know, Mm. I had deficits that I wasn't willing to talk about. Right. Which is why I think it's so important that we all talk about things with our kids, with each other, because Mm. I know I know how bad it gets when you shut yourself off from other people. Then you start if you're sick and you shut yourself off from other people. And I believe most anyone who has the idea not necessarily conscious; it can be subconscious. But I'm going to cut myself off from the outside world. I'm not going to share what's really going on in my life with outside people. I'm. I believe that anyone who thinks that automatically qualifies you have a mental health issue, right? I mean, it's 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 sweet, generous. Uh, it, there is there is a a desire, a fear that you're playing into. A desire to listen to that unhealthy self that says. No one will understand. I'm the only one going through this. Mm. Nobody would get it if I told them. Um, And it it really becomes such a damaging internal monologue to have. And the only way to cope with feelings is to talk about them. So if you cut off talking to other human beings, then I don't get to hear from you, Marcus. Oh, my gosh, I feel that way, too. And then I don't feel alone. I feel like I can share something. But if I don't share things with you, it becomes overwhelming and then we have to alter our state of being one way or another. We can become violent, we can withdraw more, we can get into drugs and alcohol, other isms come out to play. I was, you know, uh, I knew that chemicals could take away my feelings, right? And um, I desperately wanted to get away from my feelings.
0: How long, can you give us, was it a five-year period? Was it a 10-year? How long did this happen? Because I've known you for a very long time. You've been very straightforward and open with me about it. But we never really talked about it, like as a, you know, like we're, we're sharing right now. How, yeah. lo- how long was it?
2: Uh, well, I started... Um, really cutting myself off from other people when my mother went into the hospital. So that was August. Well, she went into July, but I came back from summer camp to find my mother in a body bat in a oxygen tent. Mm -hmm. So um, I, and, and within days I was, you know, having liquor delivered from the family, you know, the local liquor store. By the way, in those days, you could just call it the liquor store or you could just call up the the pharmacy and say, yeah, the doctor's office called to order painkillers for my dad. And they just were like, okay. And they just put it on the house charge and send it up. Um, So it was a different world back then. And uh, I started getting high all the time, morning, noon, and night, almost immediately. And I felt like... I felt like I had finally found my solution. What I didn't wow. realize was what worked for like a year, maybe six months, nine months, something like that, started to not work by the time I was 15 and then kept getting worse and worse and worse because it's a progressive illness, right? Yeah. It, it yeah. only, you know, isms like, like those, we say in the recovery world that, you know, you wind up in jails, institutions and death. And the rest of my story is about jails and institutions. Um, and I tried to kill myself in uh, January of, ni- early January of 1992. And right after the first of the year. And then by uh, three weeks later, I was in treatment uh, in Minnesota. And I've been sober now for 30 years. Congratulations.
1: Um, Fantastic.
2: That's a, I mean, it, but but the, the, the progression for me when, I sobered up and started doing real inventory, like really writing stuff down and talking formally about it and figuring the whole thing out. And by the way, also making amends to other people who filled me in on things that I forgot or or didn't remember or was too high uh, to accurately remember, allowed me to fill in the blanks. And I realized the, the longer I stayed sober that... The only thing that was different about me at 15 than 10 was that I was taking chemicals, right? Mm-hmm. So sure, I'd get into the kind of trouble you get into because your decision maker is cloudy because you're you're drinking or you're smoking weed or whatever you're pills. But that I had the same personality traits as a little kid that I did as an alcoholic in full bloom, which proves the point that alcoholism, chemical dependency, a lot of these mental health issues you know gambling addiction sex addiction we we are we're we're already in our illness before we ever act on it physically right that and and that's why these illnesses are recognized by the american medical association the american psychiatric association as as being a disease and this is what a lot of people have um when people say oh you're 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 You know, a a white guy who's really successful, you wouldn't know what it's like to be othered. Um, I always raise my hand and say, Hey, you know, at one point in my life, you know, not only was I homeless, so, you know, I certainly, you know, can relate to a lot of that, but as an addict and alcoholic, even today, I have people who would say, Well, I guess you, I guess you finally learned to gut it out and got sober or something like that. I'm like, No, no, no. It's, it's a, it's an illness of mind, body, and spirit. It is, it's an illness. It wasn't my choice. Nobody gets born and says, mm-hmm. "I want to. I want to be hurtful to every single human being who loves me." No one. No one no. comes into life thinking that, and that's why they get start getting high. For us, it's our solution. It's not. It's not something that we seek out to try to um, to try to inflict pain on ourselves or other people. We're we're trying something to get out of this crazy nightmare mm-hmm. that's on top of our necks.
0: So it's basically between 14 to 30. So it's basically the late 70s to the whole, throughout the whole 80s. Did you work? Did you cook? Like how did you function
2: through this? We've joked about this a couple of times before. Most alcoholics and addicts will exhibit hyper-responsibility and hyper-irresponsibility at the same time. So, explain that.
0: Uh, what are you talking well, about?
2: Well, what happens is, uh, I show up at uh Red Rooster and you hire me. I've got a good skill set and I've got mm-hmm. a nice resume. And, uh, by the way, these are the days before the internet, but, but before everyone who applied for a cooking job at a good restaurant said that they staged at Noma. Um, and, and, <laughs> and there's no there, there's there's, you know, so you go into a restaurant, people would actually say, make me something to eat. I yep. mean, that old joke, like, yep. make me scrambled eggs or saute yep. a piece of chicken. That was literally the first thing a chef would say to you, clean a head of lettuce. And you could tell, cause you've been doing this forever at a much higher level. Um, when someone is cleaning lettuce in front of you, you can tell whether they've got it or they don't. I mean, just a couple of moves in the kitchen, the people who really know what they're doing. And by the way, those can be home cooks, not necessarily professionally trained. Caring about the ingredient, the way they handle it, the way they keep their station says as much about anyone as whether they can make the fettuccine alfredo. Right. So uh, I, I was cooking at some really, really amazing restaurants, but I would I would make myself indispensable to you. So I would be the guy who put out uh, two hundred orders of brunch eggs in three hours. Yeah. And then I would go, you gave me Mondays off, but I would just disappear for two or three days and come back on Wednesday and Thursday. And the first, week, the first week I would say, oh my gosh, I misread the schedule, sorry. And someone would say, you know, some management don't do that again. And then the next week I would maybe miss a day and a half or something and I'd come back and I'd lie to you and said, oh my gosh, car accident, or my mom got sick, right? And by the third or fourth week, the excuses it was clear to you that I had a bigger problem. So then you go and you have a meeting with someone else and the rest of you say, look, this, this Zimmern kid, we gotta get yeah. rid of him. At which point, someone in the restaurant, usually on the food side, sometimes the front side looks at you and says, he's the only person yeah. that can put out food that tastes good, looks good at that volume. So I, I knew if I could last four or five weeks, I gotcha. Like, I'm already in too deep. Wow. It's like having a cannibal in the living room. I already have stolen a key to the liquor cage. You know, I mean, I'm that guy, right? Um, and then eventually I get fired. But I have six months, nine months with you on my resume. So I go on to the next place and I say, hey, I yep, I was there. I'm just trying to build more experience with other chefs. So can you now hire me at restaurant uh, X and Y and Z, right? So. <laughs> it progressed that way and and I worked with some I worked with some great people in some great restaurants but you know that's but, but thats as the you guy say that chef
0: as you say that chef you know I get very emotional right because being a chef in the 90s way before I even knew how to be a chef I, I mean I, I I became a chef very young as you know and kind of didn't catch up with myself until probably 10 years later yeah me too. but Everything you just said, right, happened in my kitchens. And I just got flashbacked 15 kids. I don't want to mention their names, but like, they know who they are and I know who they are. And but they have faces to them and they are people and they're incredible. And some I'm in contact with today and some we lost along the way. I'm, I, I mean, I want to cry because... I I was did I protect that brunch guy, and I just didn't have the tools at twenty four to deal with like, let's call him Jonathan thirty three. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't have those tools, right? Yeah. Or was I just focused on getting the best food? Did I use that guy too? Oh, so, so I feel like I was on both. It was an enabler. A- like you know what I mean? You feel yeah, little,
2: but you you can't shit on yourself. Um, the you know when we use when we start you know saying, should I have thought this? Yeah. Should I have done this? We all had the information that we had at, at the time. Yeah. And I can tell you as someone who's known you a long time, net, net, you've been a much more positive influence on more people and yeah. caught, as you said, caught up with yourself years later. You know, my first head chef job was, you know, at Conscience Point Inn in Southampton. Mm-hmm. I was 24 years old. Mm-hmm. I hadn't, I had nothing to do with what we think of as a chef Today, I was not a leader of people. I hadn't earned the position; it was given to me. I was bought and sold. I was a commodity, right? And I had the I had the skill set in the kitchen. I had none of the management. I had none of the people skills. And I'm also an addict, an alcoholic, full blown myself at that time. You know, it, it, it's it's funny. We've lost a lot of people uh, in our industry, especially because we, we're, we track about 11 to 12 percent higher uh, for all mental health uh, diseases, including alcoholism and chemical dependency, drug addiction. And it, you know our industry is a great place to hide out for a lot of folks. But because we're also the number one employer of returning citizens, we're the number one uh, employer, depending on which way you look at it, Uh, with uh, new arrivals to this country. We're the number one employer of single parents. We're the number one first time, uh, number one employer of first time job seekers. So our, I could go on and on. Our, our industry is a place where a lot of people come who have other things in their life that they're trying to work out. And I hope it's not too late as restaurants are coming back online. Um, To make sure that the lessons we've learned over the last two years, we're actually putting in place, you know, to change the things that we know we have to to be successful. So that we're sustainable from an economic standpoint and not so brittle as an industry, but more importantly, that we put people first.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
0: It's actually a mirror of Anthony Bourdain's era of all this, mm-hmm. and you change and sort of come out as curious, incredible icons of America's food, but more America's people, and you heal and you. You both go to places and take us to places, whether it's Ethiopia or West Virginia, and you show us things about food, through food, and you both have these incredible full lives, but also been on the other side. And I remember one time I was somewhere with Anthony and he said to me, oh, it's 5.30. Wow. Well, If you're going to get to the shelter, you have to kind of line up at 4.45. By 5.30, it's gone. The good, you know, the beds are gone. I say that because both you and Anthony, you've seen almost everything in life. Talk to me a little bit about your relationship with Tony.
2: Well, let me talk about it from a bigger standpoint first, and then I'll get more. I'll drill down on that. Um, Just so people understand what you're really saying it's if you have enough life experience, you just become worldly. And if you travel a lot and you have a chance to experience a lot of other things, um, it becomes one of your more valuable assets, right? And the fact that I am recovering alcoholic and drug, at, drug addict, that I have been working on trauma issues for the last 12 years in my own life and, and finally making some progress on some of the real origin stuff of what got me wow. Uh, the fact that I've been working for 10 years on my intimacy issues, uh, because I never learned how to be really intimate with somebody, Um, it's it's just a fact. It's not like I'm proud of it or embarrassed by it. It's just a fact. And today I can just say it very neutrally because there's a lot of acceptance about it, but also I've turned the corner and now I'm someone who knows how to be intimate and has dealt with his trauma. and It's a little easier to talk about it. But the last time that I was at Red Rooster, uh, was uh, after Harlem meetup.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: We had done a dinner together, you and I, in the restaurant and I was leaving and uh, Sarah uh, was walking me out uh, with JP and a car was coming to get us, an Uber, and you know it's okay, your, your car is seven minutes away, and there were a lot of people hanging outside the restaurant. I think you actually still it was war- a warm night, I think you had tables Uh, outside of the place and there was a very 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 strung out street guy who was starting to hassle some people and the the guests were looking around like they didn't know what to do Mm -hmm. but it was scary to everyone and Sarah you know and JP are like oh let's turn around and go inside and tell somebody and i just said no 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 problem just don't you know and i just walked over to the guy and put my arm around him and said hey what's up and i ended up walking him down uh the street and he had tried to get sober i mean i just asked him what his story was what the deal was and then he said something like you don't understand and i said oh no i used to buy dope in this and i started to tell him about old dope houses and stuff and he's just like you know He's just freaking out that, by the way, he has no idea who I am. It wasn't one of those he recognized from my public life. It was just I spoke his language. I knew how to deal with that. And we we got him walking down the street uh, going to because, you know, I said, look, I said, you know, here's I looked on my phone. I'm like, there's a shelter around here. There's a place where there's a hospital if you want to get help. You know, if you don't want to be jonesing out, you know, you can there's a place where that can end for you. And, um, you know, I did. I did what I could that night, but I remember turning around and Sarah and JP had been standing there the whole time watching and were just like, how the, heck? like, cause for a lot of people that's, it, it's scary, right? You know, But I didn't yeah. feel scared by an unbalanced person cause I've been that unbalanced person, right? So I, I learned skills like that through my own experience and by traveling and sharing experiences with other people, then I can import them back into my day-to-day life back here. And that that tends to be the skill set that folks like Tony and folks like myself have developed in. And, and it, by the way, it also takes many decades. So you know you have to be a, a person of a certain man or woman of a certain age. It's the skill set that I'm the most proud of that I have. Tony, you know, he was just a few years older than me. Um, he preceded me at a bunch of different restaurants. We knew each other in New York as line cooks coming up. We both went to Vassar College. We both had heroin addictions. I could just go on and on and on. It's really, really a goofy thing. And then we both wind up on Travel Channel. I mean, the thing about Tony was, unlike me, even from an early age, was you know the smartest guy in the room, the magnetic guy in the room. Every dude wanted to be his best friend. Every girl wanted to sleep with him. It was, he was, the whole room tilted towards him when he walked into it. He was larger than life in many ways uh, even before the world got to know him. And of course, you know, just like, you know, his writing or or the other things that he, he did, His first couple times out of the gate on TV, obviously, he was an immense talent. You could see the rawness uh, and the potential that was there. But he was also an incredibly quick study. And within just a matter of, you know, a year and a half of making television, he became as good a storyteller uh, in that medium as we've ever known ever not just in the food and travel space, yeah. You know, in the in the um, in the emotional space, a place that he didn't dance very well in private, but he danced really well uh, in front of the camera. Funny story. Tony called me one night. He said. Oh, my God, I'm shooting, blah, 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 blah. I need another story in Minnesota. We're coming to Minnesota. We're doing a, a Midwest show, and we, we're going to do two stories in Minnesota. I got one. I need another. And in the show, I needed to be a chef. He has to have a restaurant. And I said, well, I got 100 for you. Can you narrow it down for me? And in typically, in typical Tony style, he barked at me. He said, I have to fucking be able to like them. <laughs> and he meant it like really yeah. like them because no, otherwise sure. he wouldn't be able to relate to them. He c- yeah. couldn't act on, he yeah. had, wouldn't act. So it's like, it had to be someone who got his respect right away. And so uh my friend Doug Flicker had a restaurant at the time called Piccolo and I, he rode motorcycles and they liked the same music, but I knew Tony would love his food and Doug was a very unassuming kind of blonde hippie, but crushed, crushed the food game. And, um, you know, of, of course, Tony called him and ben, they're in the show and all the rest. Of that yeah. Doug posted something today and he said uh, that he was most struck in the documentary by the the scene where uh, they pulled it out of one of Tony's Vietnam shows where uh, he's there with a veteran uh, from the North and he's the, the veteran's, you know, starts, he's, you know, missing an arm, missing a leg and he wants to show Tony his war wounds and Tony insists on looking at them rather than looking away, despite how painful it was because it was very important to do so. And the camera brings you into that moment so that we can look at it and not forget because no matter how ugly it is and no, no matter how much it hurts as an American to see what we have done to these people, if we don't look at it and talk about it, we're going to keep repeating the same mistakes. It's, it's like the people who today culturally politically and in the education space are saying, if we don't teach American history that has not just a little story about racism in America, but foundational element of our country, agriculturally, economically, politically, was built on the backs of the slave trade that's 402 years old right now, and we've never gotten rid of it. That is one of the two or three defining totems of American culture. So how can you not talk about it? And Tony was really expert at making you look at things that were uncomfortable because how can you not talk about it? How can you not be an American living today and not try to understand what was going on in the Vietnam war and what we did there to those people, by the way, the solution being so we don't have wars anymore, right. That we solve (laughs) things a different way. He, he was, he was absolutely incredible. And you know, Tony also suffered from you know mental health issues. He <laughs> suffered from addiction issues, um, and clearly, as as you know, the the absence of a, a lot of uh, people that he got friendly with later in life, as someone who knows from experience what it looks like, but also having spoken to him at length about it in in the last two years of his life. Um, Clearly had intimacy, he had lots of lots of shit going on. I, I really think our friend was one of the most important pop culture figures um, in America. Um, not only of his lifetime, but I believe a hundred years from now, his name will still be written mm-hmm. about and talked about. I think his contributions are that important. Mm-hmm. And that's why this movie is so important, because we can't look away. At what his story is trying to tell us. Yeah. One of the things I said at the beginning was, "Case, if my higher, higher power is trying to get our our attention about friendship and love, and asking hard questions of your friends, and um, not taking the easy answer or the flippant answer at face value, and also being aware about the toll that mental health issues." and and suicide itself takes on our society if we don't look at that stuff then we're we really are doomed to remain ignorant about it and it's mm-hmm. the same thing as ignoring racism in this country it's the same things if you and i pretending to just sit around until so we can have a very flippant conversation about a lot of things and this could be a, a different kind of podcast but luckily for the listeners. There's, there, there's a real conversation going on here, mm-hmm. and it, it, it will therefore impact someone's life rather than just being a, a treacly little sweet or a candy.
0: For the, that day when Tony passed, um, I was in a hotel room. Me too. And a lot of us were in hotel rooms, and as travelers, as chefs, it was like holding up a mirror for a lot of us that we had to deal with and during one of these fancy chef events that we were so privileged to go to at Aspen Food and Wine there was there was a really beautiful event that we have talked about mental health but i stood on the corner well just let me tell <laughs>
2: Now, falling let, right
0: on your shoulder because let, I couldn't me, even like Let enter. me tell the
2: story because it's really, really yeah. beautiful. I, and I think it's really prescriptive for people who are listening. When I woke up that morning in Philadelphia, we'd been shooting till one in the morning and I, I, we slept in till 10. I didn't have, mm-hmm. I had an 11 o'clock call and I woke up to like 700. I mean, it was absurd. My, I mean, I started looking on my messages and, you know, your phone thing on your Apple that comes up on your home screen and I'm just like, oh my God, it was like the world had ended and the first thing I thought was something's happened to my kid. That was the only reason that these many people could be calling mm-hmm. me. And I had my phone off. And then I like swiped that screen away and up came my news feed. And it was just at one after another after another. And so, you know, I called the crew. They all knew. And everyone, you know, was like, take your time, whatever. If you don't want to work today, we're just going to close it down. Yeah. I said, nope we are definitely working today i, I wore t- a pair of shoes tony i used to give him so much shit about his his suede boots and his <laughs> his clark desert boots and all the rest of that like and uh, and he had some really sweet handmade versions of yeah, those yeah sure uh, and uh, you know, anyway, he gave me a pair, and I, I had to wear them that day to work. And I somehow made it through that that whole day. I mean, I cried a lot. I was certainly not myself. And then, you know, at ten o'clock that night, we we were shooting our last scene at Zahav, and you know, CNN sent a truck over and wanted me to talk about them. And it was a really really hard day. And at some point in the afternoon, I got a text from you. Uh, that said exactly what you said at the top here. Mm. I'm in a hotel room. Are you traveling, you know, like, and I, we texted a couple of times and then we didn't see each other or talk to each other. And it's, you know, whatever, six weeks later, seven weeks later, we're at Aspen Food and Wine and you had gone running in the marath- the, mm. uh, the race that morning. And I was up early uh, not to run. I know this is a runner's body, but I wasn't running. <laughs> Uh, But like any good, any good longstanding member of uh, of a 12 step group, I was up at seven in the morning, got my coffee, went to a meeting. And so it's, you know, whatever, it's like eight 30 in the morning. Yeah. Not a lot of people on a Saturday morning in Aspen, right. Up at eight o'clock in the morning. And uh, we saw each other and I could see you were already crying. And then by the time we caught up with each other, you were really sobbing and I started crying and we both sort of just held each other there. Um, I know this is going to be hard for some people to understand with something so horrifically sad in the air, looking back on it, you know, that, that we, I felt like that day we went from being friends to really good friends. Like, like, I always respect, you know, when, when, when as men grown men with families and children and business, mm-hmm. places that you respond that, that you can, that two men can be that vulnerable with each other yeah. and just be feel broken and get strength from each other. That was a new thing for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's recent, that. like in the last seven, eight years. Mm-hmm. And, um, because I always thought you either have to be the comforter or the comforted. Right? Mm-hmm. But that's not the case. No. You can sit in real emotional maturity is literally defined uh, therapeutically, philosophically, everybody defined by just holding that space yeah. between each other and not having to change it. I don't have to crack a joke to make no. you feel better. You don't have to tell me everything's gonna be okay. We could just let that moment be and and share really, really profound sadness. And then when that moment's done, you have to think, what are we going to do? Yeah. You know, what? Are we, how are we going to live our lives? What are we going to do? What are we going to advocate for? What are we – how are we going to manage ourselves to be productive, right? Because I don't think – I don't think any friends, you know, people who take their lives or that's a solution for them. They're they're in so much pain. That's that's their only solution out. And if if they felt that, I think that they would want the friends and the people who love them, who they left behind to be working to make sure that fewer people felt that way. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's that's something that we all Need to focus on letting other people know that it's okay to not be okay.
0: Two quick questions because Lightning I, round. To, I can't. We probably have to do part two on this, but you're a New Yorker, you travel the world, but home now is Minnesota and Minneapolis. And we just talked about Tony Dan but there's another incredible icon that has touched both sort of our lives from Minnesota Prince, right? Yes. We love Prince, we both love Prince. And I wonder if, just because Prince took on Minneapolis and sort of projected Minneapolis to the world in many ways, maybe the world had this idea about Minneapolis that it was a diverse place or it was very liberal or it is very liberal or whatever it may be. And then we have the incident of George Floyd, that then obviously changed the world and the narrative about Minneapolis. And someone that has been to Minneapolis so many times, someone that's worked in Minneapolis, somebody that loves Minneapolis, knows that the world of Minneapolis is not one or the other. It's a little bit of both. But I just felt like I had to ask you because... It's yes, a great Prince. way.
2: It's a great way to phrase it. it in light of, in light of what Prince was showing us. Yes. What is this last year and a half showing yes. us?
0: And how does people um, that live there feel? And 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 what is the ownership of that? And you just share a little bit.
2: Sure. What the vibe? Um, is. The you know Prince was amazing. Put us on the map in many many ways. Um, I mean the you know sports teams aside. I mean. Uh, Vice President Mondale, uh, another great Minnesota, Hubert Humphrey of Minnesota. So, you know, we we have people from Minnesota who represent us and proudly say Minnesota because a lot of other celebrities who make it big and you don't know they're from Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Um, But Prince was always about representing his hometown. Mm -hmm. And um, I was lucky enough to be able to spend time with him and be at Paisley Park and and be around, uh, you know, people who spent time with him. And, mm-hmm. you know, in the, you know, in the, at the the last five or six years that he was alive, you know, we, we were living not so far away from each other. Yeah. And um, we would get these invites to these, you know, parties that uh, happen less often than is reported in the press, but it was an open house and music was going. And some nights he came down and hung out. Sometimes he got on stage, but it was always... I mean, just mind-boggling how cool the the scene was there. Um, And he was always celebrating the new. Mm. He was always celebrating the new. And uh, obviously, as we've learned, he had addiction problems. Um, He had uh, a lot of um, uh, issues, and I did not know him well enough to comment on them more than that, because I I was never intimate with him the way I was intimate with, with Tony. Uh, or other people who have the same thing um, so many people I, I do know a lot of folks um, and we will never know whether it was a, 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 an accidental overdose whether yeah. it was something that was on purpose we'll never know this is the sad you know part of addiction uh, in our country is that it strikes anyone and everyone right I mean from the lowest to the to the highest and it's an equal opportunity problem and um, I always think, and it's, I'm fascinated that you phrased the question this way, because I thought I was the only one who who thought this. What would Prince have been doing today or last year when the horrific murder of George Floyd took place? Um, I, you know, I I was not in L.A. Uh, when Rodney King uh The Roddy King beating took place. I was not, I was not in a lot of places where stuff like that. But I was in Minneapolis when first Philando Castile. Well, first a lot of other people. Okay, so let's just say there's you could we could we could just keep listing names in every state and just keep going, right? But for me, things were reaching an insane boiling point, and then Mm -hmm. Philando Castile. Mm-hmm. Handcuffed behind his back was shot in a squad car. Um, and he was a food service worker. Mm-hmm. He fed kids in a high school and was beloved. And I knew kids who friends kids who went to that school. and that was not a news gimmick or something that that was created. This was a beloved man um, who was wrongfully executed. And I thought, well, this is it, it's gonna pop and it it fizzled. Yeah. Yeah. And so many people in the Twin Cities were talking to this. Now, you know, Minnesota is like many other states in our country. We have three very, very left of center cities. Remember, Minneapolis is the town uh, that has given us Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. Yeah, it has given us a series, you know, Sharon Sales Belton, who was a black I think the first... Black woman of a major city in America back uh, in the earliest '90s, mm-hmm. um, if I'm remembering correctly. I know she was Minnesota's yep. first black woman mayor, but I believe of a city of that size, the first one, real groundbreaking and a brilliant, brilliant. I mean, what a what a phenomenal civic leader Sharon wow. sills Belton was. And um, we we have this intense, intense, uh, diverse. Community in our big biggest cities, Minneapolis and Saint Paul. Saint Paul is majority minority right mm-hmm. now, and it's our state capital, right? Yeah. The twin cities. We have so many East African communities sure, there. Sure, Somali, yeah, Ethiopia, yeah. the whole the whole thing, and the Hmong community that's getting finally getting its cultural due. An incredible uh, region, tribal, cultural people. They've never had their own country yeah. um, that are from Southeast Asia. Uh, largest community of, uh, I think, Somalis and Hmong in America are in the Twin Cities. Yes, yeah, so Somali, definitely, definitely. It. And and so I'm, you know, we have this diverse, and then we have outstate Minnesota, which is as red as red, red can get. And I use that not just politically, but culturally in all its different definitions. And the Minneapolis, Minneapolis Police Force has been a, uh, a lightning rod, for criticism, deservedly so. Underscore deservedly so. This is factual. I am very pro-police and I have many friends of mine who wear the blue uniform very proudly. And I'm very proud to say that that I support the police force. I also support a police force mm. that doesn't do what we have seen the Minneapolis police force historically accept as behavior from its officers for years and years and years. And it turns out, once you get into it, that it's the system that's broken, which is why defund the police was a rallying cry for a solution. It wasn't absolve them, it was defund them so that we can reorganize it and refund the new version of police. And I think that the George Floyd murder um the 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 aftershocks of that are just getting started. I, I really mm. think they're just getting started. There's so because number one, there's so much work to be done. But number two, until we start celebrating our differences yeah. and celebrating alternative sets of ideas as people and celebrating each other's music and each other's food, mm. which is why I love food. I know why you do too, right? Mm. Food's the great and music, two of the yeah. great. want to suck someone in, let them listen to (laughs) you got me (laughs) great, great music, no matter where it's from is great music. And, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll make a meal and we'll put on, you know, Lady Smith, Black Mambazo and and show people what, I mean, it's, it's an incredible thing. It's why I loved showing up with you Mm -hmm. to do a Shabbat dinner at the JCC in Harlem where you brought your Jewish friends up and into up upper Manhattan yeah to celebrate what we have in common i mean mm-hmm. that is that's what we need more of because yeah. it, we just need to acknowledge your diversity yeah jews come in all shapes sizes and colors of right Beautiful. and Beautiful. people of color come in all shapes sizes and colors and ethiopians living in new york who were adopted and lived in Sweden, have Mm -hmm. a different experience than Ethiopians that uh, immigrate to the United States and live in Minneapolis. And we have to understand that all of those differences need to be celebrated. That's what Prince stood for. That's what he was trying to get everyone to do to celebrate our differences.
0: Remember that song that we were talking about? It takes you mostly. I cried, I, I I was laughing. Uh, It's a roller coaster, And (laughs) and I want to say congratulations on everything that you have done up to this point and that you're sharing with us. And we keep watching, we keep cooking with you, my friend, and I can't wait to break bread with you and hug your son and hug your family. I can't wait to
2: get my arms around you. Yes, exactly. It's, It's been, by the way. Uh, since this is a more public forum, super, super, super fast. One of the best nights of my life, and I always love acknowledging this whenever we're talking in a public forum, when the Ethiopia episode of Bizarre Foods, the first one yes. uh, aired, and I was I was in a part of the country with the First Peoples, uh, the night that it aired, I see your phone rings. Or, well, yeah, it lights up on my phone and it says, Marcus. And so I pick it up. I'm like, "Hey, dude!" And all I hear is your wife screaming.
0: Yes. Yeah, that's screaming. all I
2: heard. And at first, for a second, <laughs> I was like, "Oh my god! Like, what is going on?" And then I really, I could hear the tone of the scream was joyful. Yeah, and she couldn't even talk. And you were telling me that she was losing it because yeah. the the village that I was in was that those were all her relatives, her yeah. family, and extended. And family. it was
0: really a big coming out party for, you know, the regional Garagi in terms of the food. But I do think that's what curiosity can do when we uplift people from other cultures, other places, and that feeds everyone's curiosity. Andrew, thank you so much Thanks for Marcus. being a friend. And thank you so much for allowing us to feel curiosity. You know, you take us to places, both literally, but also you give us a lot of thing to think about. And I can't wait to talk to you and cook with you soon again, my brother. Thank you. I'll Love see you, you soon. Thanks, Thank Marcus. You. Thank you, Andrew. It's been truly an
2: honor to sit down and talk to you and check out his new show, Family Dinner on Discovery Plus. All info at andrewnzimmern.com.